Would you take your Bible and uh, go to 1 Samuel chapter number 10? We will end up in chapter 22 in just a little bit, but before we get to 22, we got to go through 1 Samuel chapter number 10. And uh, as you're turning there, I want you to do an exercise with me. It's going to be a little strange. I know we're starting chapel out just out the gate, but I need you to think in your mind, what is something or some things that you would never in your wildest dreams do? I'm talking sin right now. I'm, I'm, you pick something in your mind that you would look and say, this is so far out of bounds, Pastor Trudell. I would never do this. There's no way. Uh, and I know who I'm speaking to this morning. This is the cream of the crop. We got two of our Bible college students here. We got Mark over here uh, somewhere. Is Mark in here? Mark, are you smoking somewhere? Mark, wave at me. Mark's right here. Okay. Hey, at least he's not in the back back. He's in the back of the front section. So I'll tell Pastor Collins you're, you're kind of front slipping, kind of backsliding. But uh, I know who I'm talking to. I know this is Bible college. Uh, you may be in here and you're the church kid who grew up in church. I'm not the church kid. I didn't grow up in church. My dad's not a pastor. My dad is a lottery technician. And uh, my parents don't go to church. Most of my family doesn't go to church. Uh, but I know who I'm talking to this morning. I know these are the young folks who decided to leave house and home uh, and come to study and train for the ministry. And Brother Weaver, I'm encouraged by what I see. I'm thankful we've got some, some fresh recruits. I know you may not be fresh right now. You've got, uh, you're coming up on the end of the semester of the Bible college. You're coming up on Easter and all the work, but I'm excited for what's coming next. I'm excited that we've got some young folks that can help serve in churches. Uh, so I know who I'm talking to, but let me say this. There ought to be some things, and there are probably some things, and I want you to think of these things. What is something that you would honestly, with God as your witness, look at and say, there is no way I would ever touch that. There's no way I would ever go there. There's no way I would ever end my life in this place. Perhaps it would be uh, walking out on God. Maybe you're a young person, you've grown up in church, and, and that's all you know is church. And so the idea, uh, if, if you were to say, Pastor, I think one of the things I would never do is, is walk out on God. Maybe you're in here, and I believe that most of you will end up married. Hopefully on that list of things you'll never do is cheat on your spouse. Hopefully on that list is, is divorce. You, you know, preacher, I would never. I, I grew up in a good home or I grew up in a divorced home. And either way, pastor, I'm never going to end up in this spot. I, think of something crazy even, something so outlandish like ending your life in prison. Maybe suicide. Maybe, maybe murder. Maybe, maybe something so crazy, Brother Weaver, that it would be laughable to think that the people in this room, we would never end up there. That's where, that's where the lost, that's where the heathen, that's where the pagan end their life. And so, preacher, I have Jesus in my, my life and the spirit in, in, my, in my soul, and so there's no way I could ever end up there. And there ought to be some things. There ought to be some things that are so absurdly out of bounds in our life that there's no way any of us could ever end up there, be it child abuse, be it prison time. Uh, like I said, for every married person or every person that will be married, infidelity ought to be on that list that you'd say, there is no way I could end up there. Now, I want you to grab a hold of those things. I want you to keep them in your heart as we study the actions of Israel's very first king. Our study will take us to chapter 22, but before we get there, in chapter 22, I'll tell you this, King Saul has been king for nearly a quarter of a century, and uh, we'll end up in chapter 22 where Saul commits perhaps the most horrible atrocities upon the people of Israel. Their own king, their own, the first man that was anointed to be their protector. And in chapter number 22, we're going to see this morning that he commits some awful, awful, I would never type things. 
But before we get there, we've got to go to chapter 10. We're rewinding the clock on the life of Saul to chapter 10. It's 25 years earlier. Saul is about 30 years old. Let's pick up at 1 Samuel chapter number 10 and verse number 20. And is it all right if I just leave them seated? We're going to leave, read a good amount of scripture. You stay seated there if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse number 20, it said, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. What's going on is the prophet of the nation is calling the families, and he's singling them out, and he's weeding through them to get to Israel's first king. And he finally gets to this man, Saul, and he can't be found. He's not there, and he, he's not there for a reason, because he knows he's already been chosen as king, and he's hiding. Look at verse 22. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither, and the Lord answered, Behold, notice his spirit, his humility, his fear. Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence, and when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. In this chapter, you see a young man scared to take the reins. See, he's young, he's humble. The Bible is going to tell us that he's going to be filled with the Spirit in the next chapter or two. He has been given a new heart by God the first moment he met Samuel. He's a young man getting ready to take the, the spiritual helm of the nation of Israel, much like the young people that sit in this room. You all are the pastors of, really, some of you, two, three, four, five years from now. You are the future leaders, and I hope inside of your heart there's at least some mild trepidation, the idea that says, man, if they're going to pick me, if God's going to throw me behind a pulpit every Sunday, Lord, I hope, I hope that I can do this. And, and, and I think that this chapter would highly re represent the folks in this room. And I want you to keep this picture in your heart. This young man, head and shoulders, chosen by God, here anointed, the king, a goodly young man. As we move forward and fast forward to chapter number 22, in, 10, in 12 chapters from now, you will find a man, and you go ahead and turn there. In 12 chapters from now, you will find a man who looks nothing like this man of chapter number 10. You'll find a bitter man in his late 50s. You'll find a man who has abandoned his role as the protector of the nation full of God's people. You will find a foolish king who has forfeited the very spirit of God years earlier, and you will find a man living in complete delusion. And here's the key. You're going to find a man perpetrating acts that he himself would have found impossible 25 years earlier. Could you imagine with me, I've often thought this through, if you could have been there the day Saul was anointed, and if you could have run ahead of everybody and said, I know where Saul is, and if you could have caught him before the masses came to anoint him, and you found Saul and said, Saul, I got a quick question for you, kind of strange, I know. Hey, is there any chance in 25 years from now you will murder an entire city? Men, women, children, is there any chance, Saul, in 25 years from now you will be responsible for the slaughter of 85 Men of God, any chance? You're, you're getting ready to become king. Is there any chance that's going to happen? I truly believe if you were to ask him that, he would probably laugh at you. You know, he would say, listen, I don't even want to be king right now. There's a reason I'm hiding. I, I don't want that role. I don't want that power. You're crazy. You're telling me I'm in, in 25 years, I'm going to murder an entire city just to keep my crown? I don't even want my crown. And you're telling me in 25 years, I'm going to end up in this laughably impossible place. And yet this morning's study will bring us 
to one of the most absurd acts committed on the children of Israel, and it was done by their king. Before we pray and study through chapter 22, I need to say this. When we forsake God, if you forsake God, nothing is so absurdly impossible or far-fetched that the devil cannot make the mightiest of you and of me bow to it. I have watched, and Brother Weaver in his time in ministry, and Brother Strasbaugh in his time in ministry, we have watched heroes of the faith bow like slaves to immorality. We have seen young people sit across from the desk and mock the idea that they may fall into some gross sin. I have watched moms and dads abandon their family. I have seen mighty men become monsters over power which is what happens in this chapter. And there's a reason that Paul gave us the admonishment he did in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth... That's you. That's me. I love God. There's, there's no way, preacher, I would ever end up in this place. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it from young people in my church. But there's no way, preacher, that's going to be me. That's so far out of bounds. Take heed, lest you fall. And the sober reminder of 1 Samuel 22 is that apart from God... Even mighty kings can bow to the unthinkable. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I am asking for a special anointing today as I try to bless your choicest servants. These young people, Father, they're paying to be in this school. They're pouring their life and their heart and their soul. I know that there's a broad spectrum of students before me today. There are those who are here because they feel like they have to be. God, I pray you'd speak to their hearts. And there are those who are here because they want to be. And God, I pray that you'd speak to their hearts because it is an easy feat if we get outside of the authority of God, it is an easy feat for the devil to cause us to bow, to cause us to destroy our lives, to cause us to end our lives in the place that Saul did, the very first king of Israel. I pray that you'd open our eyes and open our hearts as we study this scripture today. I'm praying, God, that you'd meet with us. I'm praying, God, that for that young person who has a rebellious heart today, that you'd change them. I pray for that, that young person who has a proud heart that thinks I could never, that they would recognize that outside of your authority and your protection, we are sheep without a shepherd, waiting for the wolf, the lion, to come in and to devour. Bless us. Help me, God, through my notes. May it be a blessing. May it not be me. In Jesus' name, I humbly ask. Amen. The study of the life of David, all of you, I assume, are familiar with that man, brings you uncomfortably close to the man named Saul. Saul, we just read in chapter 10, starts out as a fantastic king. He's the very first king anointed of God's people, a powerful leader who started so well. But two years into his kingship, Saul got away from God. He disobeyed the commandments of the Lord and forsook his authority and the authority of the prophet. And what happens in this moment, two years into Saul's kingship, we don't have time to study it, but the anointing leaves this man, the Spirit of God leaves this man and goes to this shepherd boy named David. And from that moment forward, Saul begins his spiritual descent into ultimately what brings us to the atrocities of chapter number 22. I got to tell you, it is hard to digest. It is illogical, it is ungodly, it is horrifying. Chapter number 22 should not be in the Bible. The story of Israel's first king committing these atrocities should not be in the Bible. But what we're going to do this morning, we're going to do a little bit of a study. We're going to read through, it's a very well-written chapter, but we're going to read a good amount of scripture, then we're going to digest it. And what we're looking for in this chapter and in these events, there are five signs in the life and heart of King Saul that tell us destruction is coming. Five things that you and I desperately need to look for. Five warning signs that are red flags that should cause every person to turn around, to get their heart right with God. Because if we have these, we are on the precipice. We are on the doorstep 
You remember those things we talked about? Pastor, I would never. You find these five things in your heart, you're very close to the I would never. Let's start in verse number 20, uh, chapter number 22, verse number 6. The background of this, where we're picking up, is that David has been fleeing for his life for two years now. Saul has been after him. He is turning over every stone, climbing every mountain, checking every cave. And David, this is key. Look up here real quick. This is key. David is not threatening Saul. Twice he'll have the opportunity to kill him. He won't take it. He won't touch the king. He doesn't want to touch God's anointed. He is not pursuing Saul. Saul is pursuing him. David is simply fleeing for his life. And word gets back to Saul in verse number 6 that David has been found. Let's pick up verse number 6, 1 Samuel 22. When Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under the tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, seething, angry, and all his servants were standing about him. Verse number 7, Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you, notice how delusional this man is. Verse 8, That all of you have conspired against me. There is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none, that, none of you that is sorry for me or showeth me that my son hath stirred up my servants against me to lie in wait as at this day. This is insanity. David hasn't touched Saul. He is claiming here. Here's what King Saul is saying. He's standing under this tree at Ramah and he says, All of you soldiers, you're conspiring against me. And my son has made a league with David. And David is conspiring to kill me. None of this is true. Look at verse number 9. Then answered Doag the Edomite. Keep that in mind. Which was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, to the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. This is, this is a, a crazy picture. Saul is on the hunt. He's losing grip with reality. He thinks David is out to kill him. He hears, uh, forgive me, he accuses everyone within earshot that they're out to kill him as well. And everyone remains silent. And Saul, a grown man, 50, he says, preacher, he says, none of you felt sorry for me. All of you are against me. Every single, my son, you people, these people. And he is, he's pointing a finger at everyone and none of it is true. And then a man named Doag steps forward. He's an Edomite. He's not even supposed to be in this meeting. He's not a soldier. He's from a pagan nation. He's a shepherd. And he steps forward and he says, I saw David. I know where he is. He went to, uh, he went to the priest and you know what I saw? The priest gave him a sword. Said the priest prayed for him and gave him bread and gave him a sword. And so in the eyes of Saul, this conspiracy that David is out to kill him has already been proven. And it's grander than he ever imagined because not only is Jonathan, his son, against him, David wants to kill him. His soldiers want to kill him. And now, now the priests want to kill him. None of it is true. This man is completely losing touch with reality. Look at verse number 11. And the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, and the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. Saul calls all the priests. They come before him. Look at verse 12. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahitub. He doesn't even use his name. And he answered, Here am I, my lord. He has no idea what he's walking into. Verse 13. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me? 
thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day. He says to the preacher, you're in on it. You know where he is. You gave him a sword. He is waiting to kill me right now. None of this is true. Look at verse 14, Ahimelech's response. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is, an honor, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father, for thy servant knew nothing of this, less or more. Here's what the preacher says. He says, King, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. He's your son-in-law. There's nobody more loyal to you than David. King, no, 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 no. Honestly, I didn't do this. I don't know what you're talking about. I wish I could say that King Saul took this logically. I wish I could say that he maybe looked at it and said, oh, you know what? I'm probably overreacting. You know, David has never thrown a javelin at me. David has, has never tried to kill me. And you know what? No one around me has any idea what I'm talking about. Maybe I'm misunderstood. Maybe I'm misguided. I wish I could tell you that Saul would see the reason and acknowledge reality, but he didn't. You have those impossible things still in your mind? Preacher, I'd never walk out on God. I'd never lose my purity before the marriage altar. I'd never cheat on my family. I'd never give up on, on, on church or college. Whatever it is that's in your mind, I'd never commit suicide. I'd never, I'd never end up in this place, preacher. You got those in your mind? We're at the doorstep of that right now. We're at the doorstep of Israel's first king committing a horrible act. Look at verse 16. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. It baffles me how a king, a man anointed by God, could end up in such a place, could end up uh, out of control, where he won't believe a single person around him. And preacher, you've seen this in your time in ministry. You've seen someone come into your office and they're right. They know, and nobody else knows, but I've settled it, and this is what I'm going to do, and this needs to happen. That's what's going on. Notice how far Saul takes it. Verse 17, And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Israel's soldiers, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. You know, these soldiers could have lost their life for this. But they knew this was so wrong. They knew. They're standing by saying, King, no, we don't know what you're talking about. Ahimelech surely doesn't know what you're talking about. We've never heard David or seen David do anything contrary. King, we're not going to kill these men. These are the priests. These are the men anointed by God. They're wearing the linen ephod. They're the ones who make sacrifice for us, King. There's no way we're going to do it. But do you remember that there's an Edomite there? There's a man who has no respect for God. There is a man there who has no respect for the nation of Israel. These Edomites are sworn enemies of God. Doag, and we'll look at him again. Doag here is an Edomite. The first three kings of Israel, let me give you a little background on these Edomites. The first three kings of Israel will fight, will go to war against the Edomites. They are pagan people. Saul will fight them. David will fight the Edomites. Solomon will fight the Edomites. In fact, eight chapters ago, King Saul had fought the Edomites. But he doesn't care. The king doesn't care. He is willing to employ the very enemies of God to destroy the men of God. Look at verse number 18. And the king said to Doag, none of, the, none of the soldiers would do it. And the king said to Doag, turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore 
and five persons that did wear the linen ephod. Doag has no issue murdering 85 men of God. But pause, think with me. Let's get, let's get a little critical of the text here. Let's pay attention to what's going on. Who was Doag told to kill? He was told to kill these priests. That's what it says in verse number 18. But notice what happens in the next verse. Verse 19, And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxes and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. This heathen, pagan Edomite with the taste of blood in his mouth, no doubt chases these priests back to their city. And not only does he kill the priests, he kills the men, he kills the women, he kills the children, he kills the babies and the cattle. What a dark day in the kingdom of Israel. How did we get here? How did we end up in a place where a man was supposed to be the protector, the guide, the leader of an entire nation? How do we find him standing with his feet soaked in the blood of innocence, countless innocence? How do we end up with the king commissioning the very enemies of God? He was sanctioned to destroy, to destroy God's people. You know, the question of how did we get there, preacher and I were talking in the ready room. I've heard that question a lot. I've met a lot of people who get to a point in their life and they just, how did I end up here? How did this happen? Christians who started right. I've sat with a lot of Bible college students in my time in Bible college who end up in a place where they just say, how do I, how did I get here? I remember getting a phone call from a friend that I, I grew up with in youth group and, and he, had, he had gone to college and lost his purity and just chasing this girl and just his life became a mess. And years later, he called me from the back of his car with a, a, a gun in his mouth, said, I'm just going to end it. I don't know how my life got to where it is. I mean, the police are after me. I'm in debt from child support. I, and this was a man who went to preacher's club with me. How did I get here is a question that easily is asked. But it's probably going to be a little bit different for each of us. But there are five warning signs that I see in the life of Saul. Each of us need to search diligently for our hearts to see if these warning signs are indeed in our own lives. Because we want to avoid, do we not? We want to avoid the unthinkable. We want to avoid throwing everything away and ending up in that place that we would say, I would never go there. Five things. Number one, five things I see in Saul I don't want to see in myself. Number one, Saul had grown accustomed to living without the presence of God's Spirit. The first thing we see is that Saul got used to it. You see, 23 years earlier... After he'd been anointed king for two years, the Spirit of God leaves Saul. And it's a horrible, heartbreaking event. He falls before, Saul, before Samuel and begs. He says, please, bring the Spirit of God back to me. I can't do this. I don't want to be king without God. Please, Spirit, come back to me. But that was 23 years earlier. Now, we have a king surrounded by the aroma of death. I mean, his own people. The children of his kingdom slaughtered. And his heart is so hardened. You know, the scariest place to be Christian is when the small sin doesn't bother us anymore. It's the small stuff, preacher. It's the small crack in the wall. It's the, you know what, it's not that bad. You know, it's just something on my phone. You know, everybody does it. And, you know, it's not that bad. It's just a slip of the hand. It's just something small. And the first time you did it, level with me, the first time you did it, it broke your heart. The second time, not so much. You know, and after a while, preacher, it don't matter much. It's just something small. And you know what? One of the dangerous, most dangerous places you can be is when apathy begins to set in. 
Numbness begins to take over. And what's happening is your Christianity is decaying and you don't even realize it. You don't even know what's going on. You can boil a frog to death if you turn up the temperature slowly. It won't realize it's getting too hot. And I've watched a lot of Christians and Pastor Strasbaugh has seen a lot of Christians who started real well. And man, when they fell, oh, there was tears and preacher, pray for my family. I made a mistake. And then after a while, it's just, I'm kind of used to not having the Spirit of God. Listen, if it doesn't break your heart that you broke God's heart, you're on the precipice of disaster. Listen, if we no longer view lust, gentlemen, as a violation of our vow to Jesus, we're getting close. If we no longer think of pornography as a sin, if we no longer think of gossip, ladies, as something that breaks the heart of God, we are on our way. We may not be there, preacher. I'm not, I'm not trying to link being a drug addict under a bridge with gossiping in the dorm room, but I'm telling you, if this don't break your heart, soon enough this won't either. You are, on your, you are in that direction. When, when we think that flirting with a coworker that's lost is not that bad, Skipping our Bible time no longer makes us lonely. And we've grown accustomed to living without the Spirit of God. This is a warning sign that's absolutely in the heart of Saul. And we've got to question ourselves today. Is it in ours? Are we okay with apathy? Are we okay with coldness? Are we okay with the little sins just kind of skirting by? You know, I'm not going to get kicked out of Bible college for it. But it's, you know, it's not exactly something I want my parents knowing. The first sign I see in Saul's life is he had grown accustomed to living without God's Spirit. Second thing I see is, this is so important, Saul in his consuming pride had lost touch with reality. It, it's a crazy story. It really is. Saul he created his own version of the truth. He had this conspiracy all worked out. David was waiting for him. He understood the actions of others. Truly, in the story, he feels like he can read people's minds. He says, none of you feel bad for me. He was right no matter what. No matter what anybody else said, no, what, no matter what anybody else thought, his soldiers, the priest, Jonathan, none of them understood, but he did. When pride is our decision maker, we are capable of altering our perception of reality. Preacher, you ever heard? I just, I needed this. That's why I left my wife. That's why I ended up where I am. I needed this. Listen, in the Bible, you think about pride. It's the root of the first two sins of the Bible. Satan wanted to be like God. Eve wanted to be like God. When I think about Eve wanting to be like God, you shall be like God, I don't think she wanted her own little planet she could control. I think she wanted autonomy. She wanted to be able to determine what was right and wrong, what was good and evil. She wanted that ability. And when you and I take that ability and say, you know what, I'm, I know I, you know what, the, you know, the dean of students, he doesn't understand, but I know. And, you know, the faculty, they don't get it, but I know. And we create our own version of reality, and we are the only ones that is right and wrong. Listen, this is exactly what happened with Saul. This is what caused him to be surrounded by dead people. Regardless of reality, he was the only standard of right and wrong. Didn't matter what Ahimelech claimed. Didn't matter that nobody in the room knew anything about what he was talking about. He knew better than anyone else. He had special revelation. And listen, I, I have seen it, and every pastor preacher in this room has seen it. There have been those who sat across the office with their own self-established version of what is right and wrong. No one knows better than I do. You don't know what my husband's like. I have to leave him. You don't know what it's like in my home. I have to go here. And oftentimes, these people who create their own version of reality end up in these horrifying places. When pride is elevated, reality is lost. Men look at counsel from a pastor as foolish. 
You just don't understand. I love that person. Women who've already determined in their heart to leave their family. College students who just say, you know what? This is just not for me. This Christian life, I know you, everybody in here, you're living in your own little weird cult. You, you've, you don't know what's real. I know what's real. And that's why I'm leaving to go, you know, live with my boyfriend. Because I've got it figured out. You crazy cultish West Coast people, you don't get it. And you're the only person in the room that gets it. You are at the doorstep of atrocity. Young people who think they'll be the exception. You know, I know, pastor always says, you know, there's no exceptions. But I love him, and I lo- or I love her, and I will be the exception. We will find happiness. We will be that Romeo and Juliet. I will meet my soulmate on fill in the app. There are no exceptions. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You don't get to make God look stupid. You end up looking stupid. And that's in the Greek. Forgive me. Uh, but you don't get to prove God wrong. You don't get to say, well, I know God's word says this, but I know, and I'm right. That was Saul. And that's how Saul ended up where he did. Check your pride. Get yourself back into reality. What is right and what is wrong, not your own version of it. Number three, this one's tough. What do I see in Saul? I see, number one, he grew accustomed to the absence of God. Number two, he had lost reality because of his pride. Number three, he played the victim. Oh, this is always there, preacher. This is always there. When someone throws it all away, it's because they were the one who was hurt. Saul's standing there saying, my son, he's my enemy. My son-in-law, he's my enemy. My soldiers, they're my enemy. The men of God, they're my enemy. Saul literally says like a child, none of you felt sorry for me. No one cared. How does this fit in our life? How do we play the victim, and how does that end up uh, where Saul does? Now, I, I, I had the privilege of, uh, of being a chaplain when I was in Lompoc. I enjoyed that process, and you get to meet a lot of criminals, which is, is exciting. Um, and here's the thing. If you've ever gone to prison, hopefully you got to leave. Hopefully you didn't get stuck in there. Hopefully you were just visiting. But if you've ever visited prison, or, or as a chaplain, we would meet people, and here's what they would always say. Oh, no, no, it wasn't me. No, I've been, I've been framed. No, no, it's just, it's because of how I grew up. We grew up poor. You know, my daddy beat my mom, and that's why I beat my mom. My, my, my daddy was an alcoholic, and that's why I'm an alcoholic. My daddy looked at pornography, and that's why I look at pornography. And it is amazing how victim those who commit crimes are. I remember as a chaplain, uh, every person that they would pull over, we'd do police ride-alongs, and every person they'd pull over, and they'd find some paraphernalia in their pants, some drugs, some needle or something, and they'd always say the same thing. Oh, these are not my pants. What do you mean those are not your pants? Like, Brother Weaver, are those your pants? I'm assuming those are your pants. These are also my pants. I don't go outside in other people's pants. So I, I, it was so funny. No, 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 no. It's not me. It's not me. Somebody else. They, somebody put it in. I mean, I was walking and somebody threw a needle in my pocket. There's, there's all kinds of reasons it's not them. Now, that's funny, but let's participate in this ourselves. Pick a sin you'd never do. Young man, get married. I would, I would never abandon my family. Young lady, I would never. I, would, I couldn't. And then you sit across and you say, preacher, they just don't appreciate me. They drove me to this. I, I had to find love somewhere. I'm the victim. That's, how, that's why. How about walking away from God? I'd never do it. I'd never leave college. I'd never, I'd never throw my life away. and I'd never worship at the altar of the world. I would never... This church is full of hypocrites. Preacher, he didn't, he didn't remember my birthday. Nobody loves me. My Sunday school teacher, he didn't notice all my work. My bus captain, my division leader, he didn't care. 
You never loved me. I'm the victim, so I turn my back on my maker. The college, just not fair. You know, the dean of students, he's just giving me a hard time. Nobody appreciates all that I do. Listen, think about every husband that's ever cheated on his wife. She wasn't meeting my needs. She had stopped caring about me. She, now let's play the same game we played in the beginning. What if you could go back and ask that same man the day he stood at the altar when his wife walked down? What if you could go and say, hey man, I, I know this is one of the happiest days of your life, but is there any chance in 20 years from now you'll, you'll get so deep into lust You'll find some lady and, and, and break the heart of your children. Is there any chance that'll happen? <laughs> My wedding day, are you crazy? And yet it happens. Because th that same devoted man or that same devoted woman, when they become the victim, it, the impossible becomes probable. Listen, check your direction when you're hurting. If you're hurting, if you feel like you got to marriage you shouldn't have got or somebody overlooked you when they shouldn't have, listen, check your direction. Make sure that you're, if you're offended, don't become the offender. Uh, my, 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 my biological father was extremely abusive. The first time I ever drank or smoked, I was three and four years old. Okay, by statistics, I should be beating my wife and beating my children. And listen, being a victim does not create the, the, the ability to be vicious to other people. God can heal all hurt. And you may be in here with a broken heart and nobody knows about it. You haven't told anybody about it. Listen, if it needs to be told to somebody, tell somebody. But if you're hurt... That's okay. Jesus can use that. I, I wondered why I grew up in a broken home until I got to Lompoc, California, and 90% of our teenagers did not have a dad in the home. God can use that hurt. Do not become the victim and let that victim mentality push you to do something that right now you say, I would never. You become a victim and you can and you will end up in those places. Number one, he had grown accustomed to the absence of God. Number two, he had lost reality because of his pride. Number three, he played the victim. And number four, Saul turned to the very enemies of God. This Edomite, I believe, was placed there by Satan because the devil knew that none of God's people would raise their sword against the priests. And in your moment of unthinkable temptation, i got to warn you, Satan's going to send an Edomite. Satan's going to send somebody in your life to pat you on the back, be it a roommate, be it a co-worker, be it some friend request online that says, hey, listen, I just want you to know I've always loved you. Was wondering why we didn't work out in high school. That's an Edomite. That's an enemy of God. And I know this, that when you're going a direction, when Satan sees you moving in a direction, he's going to send somebody by who's going to approve your sin, who's going to pat you on the back, who's going to push you toward wrongdoing. It might be some godless woman at the office, young men. It might be some godless man at the office, young lady. It might be some email. It might be some spam. It might be some, from somewhere. But I know this. Satan can't read your mind, but he can sure watch your eyes. He can sure see the direction you're going. And if you're in here and you're, hard, you're, you're hurt and, and you're kind of you're disenfranchised with the, the, the idea of ministry or church, and when you start pulling away, Satan's going to send that Edomite by. He's going to send that enemy of God by to help push you over the edge. It might be your backslidden roommate who just says, you know what, nobody knows. We'll just skirt off campus and we'll get away with it. Sure, you might. You'll lose the blessings of God, though. How can you stand before a junior church and preach words of life to these kids when you know in your heart you're running from God like Jonah? Some Edomite's going to come by and push you there. Might be a friend request, might be a compliment, might be a look from a lady in a checkout desk. Uh, listen, 
When that happens, when enemies come by your way, you ought to be screaming, attack, attack, get away. I, I can't be near this person. And I've seen it time and time again, a young person go to college and come back, and somehow they just grab coffee with their old crowd. And I've seen it so many times, they don't end up back in college. They don't end up loving God. They don't end up serving Him. Satan's going to send an Edomite by. How, Pastor, how do I get to the unthinkable? Watch who Satan sends. That person who's going to speak in your ear and say, no, you're right. You are right. I saw David and I saw the priest. They gave him a sword. You know, that Pastor Chapel guy, oh, he's, he's a fake. Brother Weaver's a fake. And this is all fake. And you're going to create some version of reality in your own mind. And it's going to push you to something you say, I would never do it. I want you to notice lastly, things just got kind of out of control. And that's how sin is always. I think even in Saul's backslidden state, when it was all over and the swords were put away, he perhaps surveyed the damage. And I think honestly, he would have had to say, you know what, I, I didn't mean for him to kill the women. I, I didn't tell for him to kill the kids. How, how did, I, I, I just, it just kind of happened. And how many times, Brother Weaver, as a dean of student, has someone sat in your office and said, you know, I didn't mean for it to get this far. I didn't mean to end up here. <laughs> You know, preacher, it was, just, it was just an email that I opened. It was just a person that I talked to. It was just something small. I didn't mean for it to end up here. And yet, that is exactly how sin works. No husband ever wanted to ruin his marriage with an affair. No teenager ever wanted to lose his purity. No college kid ever wanted to end up addicted to drugs. No woman ever wanted her playful flirting to turn into the brokenness of her children. But that's the thing about sin. We never want the death that comes with it. But the wages of sin is always death. And when you pick sin, you pick death. What happened in the garden? Sin always brings death. Death to relationships. Death to trust. Death to influence. Death to your relationship with Jesus. And death to the ability to say no to sin. Some of you right now are addicts to sin. It didn't start that way. You were strong. And the idea of doing this was unfathomable. But after you, the Bible tells us that what know you not that to whom you render yourself servants to obey, his servants you are, when you submit to sin, you submit to sin. You become its slave. Same thing with Jesus. When you become a slave to Jesus, you, it becomes easier to say yes. It becomes easier to, to follow him. It becomes harder to say no to him. Sin is the exact same way. And what we have seen is that even the mightiest men bow to Satan's authority outside of God. Because if you stop bowing to his authority, you bow to somebody's authority. I, I, there was somebody who was in the church in Lompoc that I, I used to work with, and she, uh, she had commented something on Facebook. She had gotten a sparrow tattoo, and it was leaving a, uh, I don't know where she put it, but it was leaving a, a cage. And she was commenting, she said, I got this, Brother Weaver, I got this. When I left the independent Baptist movement, I, I flew from my cage. You know what she did? She flew from that cage to another one. Because you are always somebody's servant. You are either a servant to Jesus or a servant to Satan, but you will always be subservient to someone. And this we find, the five warning signs. Have you grown accustomed to the absence of God in your life? Have you lost reality because of your consuming pride? You know what's right. Nobody else does. Who's this guy with a beard up there hollering at me? He doesn't know. I know. I'm 22. I've figured out my life. Are we playing the victim? I need this. I deserve this. Are we considering turning to the very enemies of God? Before long, things will just get out of control.